morning, everyone. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. So glad you're here. This is the day the Lord has made. We're rejoicing and glad in it. So glad that you're up with us today. And, you know, and Jesus Christ is alive. He's alive and well. He is active in our world, and I know he's moving in your life. So you be encouraged and inspired today. If you're joining us online, welcome to you. We're glad that you're here with us today as well. We're so happy to have you with us. Um, last week, I talked about heaven, and so today, naturally, we have to talk about hell. And that may sound like bad news, but let me just, let me just encourage you that the gospel is good news. And if the gospel contains the reality of hell, then there's good news in there, and we're going to find some today if we can. So I hope it'll be meaningful to you, perhaps instructional and, and inspiring. We've chosen as our text today from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. Matthew 25, I'm going to read verses 31 to 46. This is Jesus now speaking. This is the subject of the sheep and the goats, and it's in the red letters, so extra special. So if, you, if you're able, please stand to hear God's word. Thank you for doing that. And Jesus said, verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty, give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. May God instruct us, inspire and encourage us through his word today. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Let me give you a quote from John Wesley. Some of you may recall that John Wesley lived in the 18th century. He was the founder of the Methodist movement. Union Chapel is part of the pan-Wesleyan world. There are millions of people around the world now because of John Wesley's faithfulness. And he said there were two requirements for becoming a part of the early Methodist movement. Two requirements. He said the first was a desire to pursue holiness. And the second reason was a desire to flee from the wrath to come. Pursue holiness and flee from the wrath to come. Interesting perspective. D.L. Moody is a name that some of you may be familiar with. Uh, Dr. Moody lived in another generation 
uh, Moody Institute's in Chicago now, a beautiful institution there. Uh, many of us listen to Moody Radio. So D.L. Moody said that if, there were, if it were in his power, the method he would use to motivate his young preachers would be to dangle them over hell for five minutes. Then he said, then they would be ready to preach. <laughs> Maybe so. Billy Sunday, uh, a name again from another generation, famous evangelist in the United States, he famously said, if there was more preaching on hell, there would be fewer people going there. Interesting. Jonathan Edwards is another name from history that I want to mention to you today. He was an 18th century Christian leader here in the United States. He was an intellectual in the truest sense of the word. His place among the thinkers of the world is high and unmistakable. And as a pastor in the 18th century New England, he was at the forefront of a work of spiritual revival, which was later described by historians as the first great awakening. Jonathan Edwards was, like, was literally the lightning rod uh, upon which and through which God caused a great move of his spirit to sweep across the colonies in the 18th century. Uh, he was one of the greatest preachers of his age. His most widely quoted sermon is one entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's the most famous discourse of its time and perhaps the most terrifying sermon ever preached. I first read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in the top story of the Asbury Theological Seminary Library in the last hour one night before the library closed. I was the only one on the whole floor and this sermon goes on for like 35 or 40 pages. Uh, if I were to read it to you today, it would take well over an hour just to read the sermon. It was very forceful and very powerful. I wanted you to just get a taste of that sermon. I challenge you to go home, just Google sinners in the hands of an angry God and read it word for word. When I did it in the library... <laughs> years ago, I was converted all over again. I said, Jesus, look, I know I'm here studying to be in ministry, but if I'm not right with you for any reason, I'm, I, you know, I'm just settling it again. It was a very sobering experience. Here's just a taste of it. I'll put it on the screen so you can kind of follow along. And this isn't some special section. 35, 40 pages is just like this <laughs> over and over again. And he writes, there's nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell, but the mere pleasure of God. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to render downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And all your righteousness would have been no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice directs the bow to your heart and strains at the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Edwards first preached that sermon on July the 8th, 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut. 
And people reported that the columns that held the balcony in his church, just like these steel columns we have under our mezzanine here, that, that men literally got up and, and wrapped their arms around the columns of the church and begged Edwards to stop because they felt themselves descending into hell. I believe in hell. I believe in it rationally. I believe in it emotionally. It impacts me very, very often. It bothers me. It tends to jar me out of complacency. It reminds me of the purposefulness of our mission and spreading and disseminating the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, there are modernists, postmodernists, post-Christianists in our world who reject the idea of a final judgment and hell. Uh, they say, I cannot reconcile the very idea of hell with a loving God, even if he is holy as well. Therefore, it's tempting to avoid such topics in our preaching and teaching. It's much easier to turn the other way and not have to deal with it. At the conclusion of a sermon on Hell at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City a few years ago, a question and answer session was conducted. A young college student said in a tone more sad than defiant, and I quote, I've gone to church all my life, but I don't think I can believe in a God like this. Before the pastor could respond, an older businesswoman said, well, I'm not much of a churchgoer, and I'm in some shock now after hearing this sermon. I've always disliked the very idea of hell, but I never thought about it as a measure of what God was willing to endure in order to love me. A mature Christian in the group then said, yes, he's not just an angry God or a weeping, loving God. He's both. He doesn't only judge evil, but he also takes the hell and judgment himself for us on the cross. The businesswoman then added, yes, I've always thought hell told me about how angry God was with us, but I didn't know it was also told about me what it told about me, how much he was willing to suffer and weep for us. I never knew how much hell told me about Jesus' love. She concluded, it's very moving. And it's only because of the doctrine of judgment and hell that Jesus' proclamation of grace and love becomes so brilliant, so astounding, so meaningful. Now, we live in a very permissive society. There's your understatement for the day. We live in a very permissive society. And permissive isn't the right word. The better word, I think, is shameless. We live in a very shameless society. We used to hear the phrase, shame on you, shame for behaving that way, but we don't hear that anymore. It's a shameless society. And I wonder sometimes if there are any Christians left who actually believe that God would allow anyone to go to hell. You don't need to hear the subject of hell talked about very much in culture or even in the church. And it's understandable, isn't it? Because it's a totally intense and unpleasant and frightening subject and people tend to shy away from it. Yet the subject of eternal judgment and hell is found throughout the scripture. And it's interesting to note that, that while the Old Testament prophets refer to the judgments of God, of course we know they did, and the New Testament apostles made clear and obvious references to eternal judgments and punishment. Now, I want you to hear this next statement. In fact, I'm going to put it on the screen so you can absorb it the vast majority of direct references to the place called hell comes from Jesus himself. Jesus didn't avoid the discussion. 
he planted a one-word caution sign between you and hell's path. He called it perish. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, John 3, 16. Jesus spoke of hell often. 13% of his teachings refer to eternal judgment and hell. Did you know that? Recorded in the New Testament, 13%. Two-thirds of his parables relate to resurrection and judgment. Now, having said that, Jesus wasn't cruel or capricious about, about the subject. He was just blunt. In fact, his character, uh, his character is on display. I mean, he's kind, he's forthright, but his candor on the subject of hell is really stunning. He's just very matter-of-fact about it. We just read one of these references today from Matthew 25. He speaks in tangible terms. Fear him, he warns, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, Matthew 10, 28. He quotes Hades' rich man pleading for Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, Luke 16, 24. Words such as body and finger and tongue presuppose a physical state in which a, a longing for water and a person begging for relief, physical relief. The apostle said that Judas Iscariot had gone to his own place, Acts 1.25. The Greek word for place is the word tapos there. Jesus actually uses the same noun in John 14.2 when he said, in my father's house are many mansions, I go to prepare a place for you. So hell, like heaven, is a location. It's not merely a state of mind. It's not a metaphysical dimension or floating spirits, but an actual place populated by physical beings. And it's a woeful thought, isn't it? God has quarantined, apparently, a precinct in his vast universe as a depository for the hard-hearted. The very thought of it is just dreadful, horrible. And, of course, today thousands of people mock the whole idea of hell. People in this room right now who think I'm crazy. He believes in hell. It's ridiculous. No, a loving God can't possibly create a place called hell. Millions more soberly reject it. Perhaps billions in our world don't even know it exists. And so the most logical question that always comes up in a context like this is, how can a God of compassion, of love and mercy and grace create such a place? How can a Lord who possesses all the power to save and, 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 and predestine and redeem lost people speak of, even in hallowed terms, such a doctrine like the doctrine of hell? How can a good God justify hell? It's a great question. Now, we know something about God. We know he is love. In fact, that's a phrase in the Bible. God is love. So he's love personified, magnified, exemplified, 1 John 4, 16. But God is also just. He's infinitely holy. He's perfectly righteous. So the scripture gives us a picture of Jesus as both the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. He's depicted as the Lamb of God in John 1.29, the Lion of Judah in Revelation 5.5. I'm giving you all these scripture references, so I th hope that you'll listen to this sermon again. And when you go back through it, you can pause it and look up these verses because I, I took a long time to put them together, so I want you to get the full benefit. So like a lamb, the lamb of God, he's meek and gentle, a holy sacrifice for the sin of those who confess him. And like a lion, his claws can tear the unrepentant to pieces. 
So it is this picture that reveals an answer to the question of hell. How can a loving God justify a place called hell? And the answer is because of the character of God. The character and very nature of who God is. Now, I want to just spend a few moments this morning talking about these attributes of God's character. They're on your outline. Here's the first one. His righteousness and holiness. Now, I want you to think with me. That God is righteous and holy means he always acts in accordance with those things he deems just and lawful. Say it another way. He cannot do anything less than what is right. God's great plan in the world is ultimately to bring the universe back to perfect righteousness, back to the harmony that he originally designed the world and human beings in this pristine, perfect world, back to the likeness in which he created us, the likeness of his character. Now, there are only two ways that he can redeem the whole world and bring it back to its original state. One is by providing a way for sinners to return to a righteous state, to the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ, to sufficiently pay for the sins of the world so that that's one means by which he can return the world to that righteous state. And the second option is that, is that God can confine such people in a place where they cannot affect or harm those who seek righteousness nor pollute the perfect environment of God and his holiness. That place is called hell. Years ago, uh, Beth and I took a number of our staff to Wilmore, Kentucky, where there were some special renewal services going on there. And the, the presence of God, I can't, exp- I can't explain this, was so wonderful and so tangible, so present. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a time of renewal. And God's presence was so wonderful one afternoon in a session at First United Methodist Church in Wilmore, Kentucky. This is where Asbury University and Asbury Theological Seminary is in Wilmore. And we're in the church in an afternoon session, and the presence of God was beautiful, wonderful. And it was so much so that we were no longer actually comfortable sitting like we're sitting right now or standing, like it wasn't proper. And and so the, the instinct that people had was to just get on the floor, just get as low as we could. And Beth, my wife, and I had to prompt her this week I was gonna, that I was going to tell this story so that at 8.30 she would brace herself because I can't rehearse this story about her without her getting emotional about it. Of course, she's not here this service or next because she's over working in the children's area. And she was prostrate on the floor with her face on the floor, prostrate there. And not just for a few minutes, for an hour, an hour and a half, prostrate on the floor in the presence of God. And as she rested on the floor, she reported that she began to experience in a tangible way the glory of God. She said it was like the veil of the temple was removed and the pure, undefiled, burning holiness of God was before her. You remember when the priests in the Old Testament, when they dedicated the temple and on other occasions, the priest could not stand to be in the presence of God? Do you remember this? And so they, they literally, with, they fell to the ground, unable to stand up in, in the presence of God. 
You might remember Isaiah chapter 6 where we find Isaiah the prophet who has this epiphanal revelation of Almighty God. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, the, 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 the robe of, uh, uh, filling, his robe filling the temple. And he, so he sees God. He, he reports that there are these angels called seraphim. It's the only place in the Bible we have these angels described. Seraphim, uniquely designed angels designed to dwell in the very presence of God. Apparently, these six-winged creatures who are the magnificent sons of God. Imagine a creature designed to be in the presence of God, the very presence of God. And they have six wings, and, and, and Isaiah described them. With two of their wings, they would cover their face. With two of their wings, they would cover their feet, their torso. And with two, they would fly, and they, they cried out, back and forth to one another, and apparently they've done this for eternity. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then an antiphonal response, the other seraphim shouting back to the other, yes, he's holy, holy Lord of hosts. Magnificent creatures of God. And yet what are they doing? They're covering their face. Why? Because even though they've been uniquely designed and created to be in the very presence of God, they are fit not to look upon him. They cover their face. And with two, they cover their feet. Why are they covering their, their bodies? Because they know they're not only not fit to look upon God, they are not fit to be looked upon by God. And Beth, in this moment where she now feels connected to the glory of God and the presence of God as he is, instinctively on the floor, she covers her face. No one told her to cover her face. She covered her face and began to weep. And not just for a few minutes, this went on for an hour. And through her tears, all she could say was, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so, I'm so un... Isaiah falls, falls on his face, covering his head in the fetal position, and he's calling out, woe is me. Woe. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Listen, here are some biblical phrases for you. Our God is a consuming fire. He dwells in light. It is a terrifying thing, the Bible reports, to fall into the hands of the living God. The utter and absolute holiness of God, hear it then, will not permit the presence of that which is unholy and unworthy. That's his righteousness and his holiness. Here's a second characteristic that allows for the possibility, the presence of hell, and that is the justice of God. The justice of God functions as a logical complement to his righteousness. Follow me now, if you can. His righteousness demands that he makes things right. His justice demands that something be done about sin. Something must be done about sin. Now, to bring about perfect justice for all the wrongs in the universe, God has offered two options. 
There are these two, two options. One, to make payment for these sins himself through the death of his son, Jesus, or to require payment by the sinner. All of that to say that, listen, the, the God that we have fashioned in our own image in our culture right now, a shameless culture, this is, this is, this is a tiny little God. He's a tiny little God. He sits in a tiny little chair and he looks at us, glances at us occasionally, not very often, but he glances at us occasionally and he winks at us. And when we're messing up and we're engaging in sinful behaviors and we're departing from the original plan and design of God for his created order and for people in this world, and we think that God is giving his approval with all these things, and we imagine God just a, he's just a kind little, he's lowly, Jesus, meek and mild. He's got little children around his feet. He's got a lamb slung across his shoulders and he just winks at us, you know, when we mess up, we engage in, in behaviors and lifestyles that are contrary to his best plan. We think he looks the other way and says, that's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. Everything's fine. But God cannot wink at sin. He cannot overlook it or allow it to persist. Habakkuk 1.13, Psalm 5, 4 and 6. One of the great Christian classics that every Christian should read is by J.I. Packer. Dr. Packer wrote many years ago a book called Knowing God. If you have not read Packer's Knowing God, get it, put it on your list, read it. He vigorously defends the necessity of God as judge with these words, and I quote, why do men fight shy of the thought of God as judge? Why, why do they feel the thought to be unworthy of him? The truth is that part of God's moral perfection is his perfection in judgment. Would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and admirable being? It's a really good question. Would a God who put no distinction between the beasts of history like Hitler and Stalin and his own saints be morally praiseworthy and perfect? Moral indifference would be an imperfection of God, not a perfection. But not to judge the world would be to show moral indifference. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being, not indifferent to questions of right and wrong, is the fact that he has committed himself to judge the world. You've heard me say this before, and in my opinion, what is lacking today is a certain sobriety, a holy fear, if you will, about God and the faith. We have in Western cultures, at least, a church. Church is entertainment. Church is therapy. Church is religious education. Church is pageantry. And God knows church is politics. But what is often missing is precisely the element that filled so many of Jesus' parables and teachings, that a holy and all-knowing righteous God is going to judge us based on what we did with Jesus Christ and the resources he gave us to watch over and invest. We will stand before God, for it is appointed for men once to die, and after this comes the judgment. Hebrews 9.27. So the justice of God is a characteristic of God that permits the existence of hell. Here's the third idea. That is God's love and his wrath. Two sides of the same coin. Two aspects of God's nature linked together in the doctrine of hell. Let me explain. His love requires a hell because he must protect those he loves from the defilement of his enemies. 
His wrath calls for vengeance that his enemies be punished for injuring and hurting and rejecting him. Let me ask you a question. Does God love you? Does God love you? How do you know? Bible tells me he loves me. Okay. Do we deserve to be loved? Are we, are we so precious and special? That's why God loves us? We always deserve to be loved? That's not it, is it? What is it then? We can point to such things as blessings. We can point to things like provision and an abundant life and salvation itself is a wonderful gift. Might indicate God's love, of course. But what is the ultimate assurance of his love for us? What is it? I'll tell you what it is. It's his character. It's who he is. It is who God is essentially in his nature and his character. God is love. And he chooses to love because it's who he is. It's his good nature to love his creation. So how can we be assured of judgment and vengeance? I mean, sometimes in our world, justice prevails. I mean, someone who has, who has failed in life is judged righteously and is punished for that. And so occasionally we will see justice work out in our world today. But ultimately, the assurance of God's wrath, the assurance of his judgment to the world, against the world, is also found in his character. It is the sure nature of God to make everything crooked straight. God cannot help himself when he loves you. And God cannot help himself when he takes everything that's crooked and make it straight. Because he's going to do it. What is the nature and characteristic of hell? As you study the scriptures and the agonies of hell, it's described as total solitude, Mark 9, 42. Absolute darkness, Jude 13. Utter worthlessness, Job 18, 5 to 21. Fire and burning, Revelation 14, 10 and 21, 8. Thirst, Luke 16, 24. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 22, 13. Sleeplessness, Revelation 14, 11. Shame and disgust, Daniel 12, 2. Hopelessness, Matthew 25, 46. You begin to see its nature as the exact opposite of all that God is. Think of it. He offers hope. Hell writhes with despair. He gives peace. Hell screams with pain. He wipes the tears from our eyes. Hell is nothing but shrieks and weeping. He gives us rest and water and food and fulfillment. Hell offers only thirst and hunger. He is light. Hell is black as darkness, Jude 15. Hell ultimately is complete and total deprivation of everything God created that people want and people need and people enjoy. Thus, hell is nothing more than existing in a world totally bereft of God. So clearly, hell is not a pleasant picture. It's not meant to be. It's the prison for all those who willfully reject God and his son. Now, remember this. Hell is, is not some tactic on God's part to scare us and to serving him. That's not, that's not the deal. It's the only thing he can do with those who hate and reject him. His character demands it. It's the only option. Let me put this statement on the screen. I want you to get it. Hell is reserved not for those souls who seek God yet struggle. 
Can I get a witness? That This is my category. I'm a God seeker who struggles. <laughs> Hell's not for me. Hell's not for you. But for those who defy God and rebel, the ultimate choice of where we will spend eternity belongs to each one of us. So in history's highest expression of fairness, God honors our preference. This is free will. This is the most important moral reality in the whole universe. You get to choose. You decide whether you're going to say yes to God and commit your life to him or to say no to him. It's not his will that any should perish, but the fact that some do highlights God's justice. God must punish sin. Let me put this scripture on the screen, Revelation 21, 27. Nothing impure will ever enter heaven, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's the Lamb's book of life again. This is the, the book of Jesus. You want your name in that book. God inherently holy must exclude evil from his new universe. So God eternally gracious never forces his will on anyone. Here's a famous quote from C.S. Lewis, as you know, a popular Christian author. I, I love Lewis's work. Look at it. He said, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. That is very insightful. Listen to me. There, there won't be any atheists. There won't be any atheists in hell. Are you listening? Atheists will go to hell, but there won't be any atheists in hell because there won't be anyone in hell who doesn't believe God exists. They'll know he exists. But they'll choose not to believe. There won't be, there won't be any God seekers in hell either. And what an amazing insight. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. Well, that's not fair. Unfairness, you say. Listen, God has wrapped caution tape all around hell's porch, posted a million and one red flags outside the entrance. In order to descend the stairs into hell, you have to cover your ears and blindfold your eyes. And, and most of all, Ignore the epic, pivotal moment of sacrifice in all of human history. Christ in God's hell on humanity's cross, crying out as the, as the sky above him began to blacken as he hung there, bleeding and dying and calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, who hates sin, unleashed his wrath on his sin-filled son. Now think of it, Christ, who never sinned, endured the awful forsakenness of hell. So here's the supreme surprise of hell. It's this, that Christ went there so you and I don't have to. Glory to God. Thanks be to God. He arose not just from, from the dead, but from the depths. Christ emerged from Satan's domain with this declaration. I have the keys in my hand of death and hell and the grave. That's Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Glory to God. A woman told about the final hours of her aunt. The woman lived her life with no fear of God or respect for his word. She was an atheist. 
Even in her final days, she refused to permit anyone to speak of God or eternity. Don't want to hear that. Don't for, I forbid any conversation about God in my presence. And only her maker knows her last thoughts and eternal destiny. But her family heard her final words. Hours from death, scarcely conscious of her surroundings, she opened her eyes. And addressing a face visible only to her, she defiantly said, you don't know me? You don't know me? We're left to wonder, was she hearing the pronouncement of Christ? I never knew you. Depart from me. Matthew seven twenty three. Contrast that woman's words with the words of my good friend Mark Beeson, who passed away about nine months ago. Three weeks before Mark died, we had our last meaningful conversation. We were together. He was reflective and pensive, thoughtful. He looked at me and he said, Greg, I, I need to tell you something. He said, I'm, I've been told not to tell this. He said, I've not told my wife, I've not told anyone. But he said, in recent days, he said, I've been living between two re realities. He said, in the night, he said, I don't know if I'm in my body or out of my body, I don't know. But he said, I've been allowed to see things that people aren't allowed to see. He said, I've talked to people who've already passed over. He said, I've seen my mother. He said, I, I needed to tell you what's happening to me. And I said, Mark, this is, a, this is a wonderful gift of God. He's given you a glimpse into a world that is better than any of us imagine it to be. It's where you're going. And God's using it to comfort you, give you peace as you face your day. Everyone has a choice. You can either face death with fear and dread or you can face it with hope and joy. Choice is yours. It's up to you. God makes the offer. We make the choice. John chapter 1 verse 12 simply says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons and daughters of God, even to them that believe on his name. God makes the offer. We make the choice. Could we think and pray about that for a moment? Would you bow your heads with me? Let me just say this to anyone within the sound of my voice today. If you are on the road to hell, stop and get off. Get off. Get off the road. You don't want to go there. God doesn't want you to go there. 
I don't want you to go there. It wasn't made for you. Wasn't prepared for you. Wasn't God's idea for you. And yet there it is. Because of the magnificent love and devotion of God based on his character and his nature. His love for you. Not wishing for anyone including you to perish, but to have everlasting life. God makes a way for you. There are only two options. You can either accept God's provision for your sins or you can account for them yourself. God makes the offer. We make the choice. So, Pastor Greg, I don't want to go to hell. Okay, then. Okay, then, accept the provision God has made. Accept it for yourself. You can do that right now. If you pray a simple prayer, mean it in your heart, mean it sincerely, God will hear your prayer. This isn't, this isn't, about, this isn't about avoiding hell as much as it is receiving the life that God offers, which is the best sort of life, most satisfying, fulfilling life. And he offers it to you free. It's called grace, unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. So if you're in the room or watching online this morning, or whatever time of day it might be, you can say yes to Jesus. Just pray this prayer out loud after me. Everyone's going to pray it out loud right now. Are you ready? Gracious God, I'm a sinner. I've made mistakes. I've fallen short. But I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. He suffered the penalty that I deserve on my behalf. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse my life. I want to know you. I want to receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done for me. I give you my life. I give it to you freely. I want to belong to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now clap your hands for people who just were very good for Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. It's good. All right, would you stand with us as we sing?